Good morning, and welcome to Positively Politics, the show where we break down the sometimes complicated and often negative world of politics in a straightforward, unbiased, and academically rooted way. My name is Dr. Laura Merrifield Wilson. It's a pleasure to have you here joining me today on the show, and I'm really looking forward to what was a crazy week in politics. And it's so funny. I feel like in 2018, much like 2017, we would have these weeks where a lot would happen. And, uh, and you'd just say like, oh, crazy week, so much to talk about. And then you'd have a couple weeks where it would kind of be a lull and, uh, and there wouldn't be as much news. Um, this week ain't one of them because there is so much to talk about. And I wanted to focus on what I think are probably the three most important things. These are two important federal issues. And then I also wanted to talk about one important local government. And I don't talk nearly em- enough about local government, but if you've been following the news, Local governments made a lot of attention recently, the animosity between our city council president and uh, the city county council itself and firings and votes of no confidence, getting into all those details. But in terms of the week, everything that's happened thus far, I feel like on Saturday we can say that as a review, if we're looking for indicators of, of what's going on. To me, this is just so indicative of the continuation of a partisan struggle. And whether you're talking about the State of the Union or the State of the Union responses or the Nunes memo, as I've heard a lot of people refer to it as, of course, this is the memo. I've spent a lot of time talking about that. And even in terms of county government, city, county, you see this incredible struggle, not just between the political parties, but within them. And it, it's fascinating to watch as the parties grapple with their own challenges because a lot of times traditionally we've seen Democrats have this issue more. I think part of it plays to the Democratic base and, and who Democrats are as a party. You know, they are seen as much more um, diverse. They certainly have a lot more uh, differences among themselves, not just in terms of who supports them and who their candidates are, but the policies. There's a lot of reconciliation that has to happen within that party. And so they've, they've struggled with being a coalition for a very long time. But we've seen the same thing happen over history with the Republican Party as well. And, and especially in 2016, what couldn't be crazier is how the, the beginning of the election cycle looked like this was going to be a moment for Republicans to really reevaluate who they were and reevaluate what they stand for and reevaluate what, what they were as a party. And it turned out to be quite the opposite, where in fact that kind of coming to Jesus moment <laughs> that that really belonged to the Democratic Party at the end of the day. That was something that they had to grapple with and decide with. And if we look at the the three events I want to talk about today in, in this week in politics, each one of them shows political divisiveness, not just between the parties, but among them, within the parties. So I wanted to start, of course, with the State of the Union, and that's the annual address the president gives around this time of year in January. And, uh, and it's certainly quite a tradition in American politics. I personally love watching the State of the Union because in some ways it's um, classic government propaganda. <laughs> and I don't mean that in a negative way. That certainly can be taken as such. But, but it's, it's government propaganda in that it is a, an hour long, or in this case, an hour and 20 minutes. So if you weren't familiar, this was one of the longest State of the Union speeches. And I'll say towards the end I was feeling it. I thought, gosh, is it – 
is not quite done yet, but Bill Clinton had two that were longer in the 90s. Otherwise, this was a relatively long State of the Union speech. They're usually about an hour. And you have an hour-long address where the president, the leader of our country, is basically trying to tell you why everything is going well, what he has done to make it this way, and how he's going to make it even better. You know, in short, that's that's the that's the really quick and dirty summary of any given State of the Union speech you've ever listened to. But all the presidents address this in a different way. They all have their different styles. You know, if we're looking back to the previous administration with President Barack Obama, he was known for being a charismatic leader. And a lot of the stuff I'm going to say today, as you should always take, this is like from a nonpartisan assessment. I don't I don't care if you like the president's policies, the current president, or the previous president. You know, take take those partisan blinders off for just a moment and analyze them as though party didn't exist. You know, President Obama was known for being a charismatic speaker. He worked a stage and he worked a crowd. He has to be one of the best political speakers as far as presidents go. Um, certainly in my generation, in my lifetime, but I, I would say, you know, in American history, I expect that he will be remembered as such. And if we contrast that with President Trump, I think one of the things that made this State of the Union so, so much of an anticipated event for me was that we have a president right now who's very vocal. And, and you don't have to wonder, like, oh, I'm not sure what he's thinking on certain things. And in the past, historically, you didn't have presidents that were constantly talking or, in the case of President Trump, constantly tweeting their opinions. One of the things that President Trump does very effectively is that he's very good at explaining where he stands on certain issues with the mass public. You know, he doesn't rely on the media. In fact, he very famously has a very acrimonious relationship if you knew very little else about our president, he's not a fan, not a big fan of public media or uh, private media for that matter, just not a fan of media, you know, fake news, so to speak. But despite the fact that he is very deeply connected to the public and that through social media and Twitter specifically, President Trump has connected with people in a way that we've never seen a president do. You know, and granted, they haven't had that ability through social media, but nonetheless, he takes advantage of it. He knows how to utilize the medium and keep the conversation going and change the conversation in the direction of his favor. He's very effective at doing that. So as we got ready to watch the State of the Union Tuesday night, that was the thing I kept thinking was how does a president who lets all of his opinions be known tell us for an hour what his other opinions are? What his other thoughts are? What are his other accomplishments? This is not a man who's been shy about it. And so I, th- I think that takes a certain kind of uh, finesse in the speech writing and even in terms of the speech delivery that makes it unique and, and certainly exceptional or different than what we're used to seeing. Now, this is Dr. Laura Merrifield Wilson here on WICR 88.7 The Diamond talking on positively politics about political divisiveness this past week and focusing right now on the State of the Union. Now, one of the things I mentioned is this is not just party against party. And I do love, and I mean it genuinely, I love when you're watching the State of the Union, if you did not know a single person in Congress, like, and bless your heart, but if you didn't recognize your own congressional representative's face, if you didn't know the leadership, 
you know, for whatever reason, you just didn't know a single person, it would take you less than five seconds to figure out who's in what party. Because you see, anytime the president makes a really large statement, you have all the people in his party stand applauding, wildly excited, you know, all this expression. And then you see the other side of the aisle and they're, you know, they sit there and they scowl. And I, I can remember this every State of the Union speech I've watched. I tried to explain this to students. And, you know, that's not just Democrats and Republicans. That is every single time. But, but if you were just listening, the funny thing is with this inner party fighting, or at least this, certainly the struggle within the parties, is Donald Trump said a lot of things as a Republican president that sounded like a Republican president. You know, he talked about immigration. He said that towards the end, but he talked about immigration and proposed policy ideas that sounded very much in line with the Republican Party and certainly within the line of President Trump harkening back to candidate Trump, you know, talking about border reinforcement, a.k.a. a wall. That's a huge thing he campaigned on, you know, and, and talking about um, merit-based immigration. A, a lot of things that sounded right in line with the party, even in terms of minimizing government regulation to help build the economy and help stimulate business growth, you know, very much sticking to the Republican talking points, except for when he doesn't. And there were times Tuesday night, if you watched the State of the Union, where he didn't. I'll say my little ears perked up when he just mentioned, and it was in somewhat of a fleeting moment, but realize this is not – he's not writing the legislation right now. You can just say, oh, I support this idea and then move on to another topic. Nobody cares. But I perked up when he said uh, paid family leave. I thought, huh. <laughs> did, did his party know that he was going to mention that? But that's not traditionally a Republican value. Not to say you – know, someone, someone's going to say, well, I know one Republican that supports that or I know a couple Republicans. Of course they do. And I know Democrats that are opposed to it. But generally speaking – there's a partisan divide there. And and in this case, this is something where President Trump kind of crossed it. And I thought that that's pretty unusual. But what about all the time he spends? And this has been consistent, not just in the State of the Union, but all the time he spends talking about infrastructure. He mentioned it in campaigns, which was a little unusual because, again, he's running as a Republican candidate. You know, he he's talked about it throughout his administration. And a year in, in his State of the Union address, he talks about the importance of infrastructure, being able to fund this, being able to expand it. And of course, to fund it, we're looking at, well, where does the money come from? Not a traditionally Republican value. I think for the party, you see these different little cracks. And I don't want to say that they're divides, but you see these little cracks where you have different factions saying, what is, what's the most important thing for a party? What do we genuinely stand for? And you don't have to look too far to look at those just the same for Democrats. The Democrats had five responses to the State of the Union. And I know sometimes that has happened, so I don't want to feel like I'm unfairly picking on them. But when I heard that initially, I had to giggle and think, oh, of course, that, and that's a challenge the Democratic Party is having right now. Both parties are divided and factionalized in kind of unusual ways. And, and this, unfortunately, will only work to the benefit of their opposition. Because if you can't agree on the platforms, if you can't agree on the policies, if you can't agree on the people who will implement them, where does it put you? You know, are, are you really unified as a party? Because that's a requirement to be in a party. It's you're supposed to be this unifying factor that helps people work together. It helps organize you know, elections. It helps educate voters. It helps come up with policy priorities. 
And if you're not able to do that together within a party, you're certainly not going to be able to reach across party aisles into bipartisanship. And that seems to be a major challenge right now in American politics. If you're just joining us, this is Dr. Laura Merrifield-Wilson here in Positively Politics on WICR 88.7 The Diamond. We're talking about political divisiveness across party lines and just spent a little time talking about the State of the Union, um, what the speech entailed, what it included. But I wanted to go on to the Nunes memo. So if you're like me, you know, it was I almost got memo fatigue. And I heard someone actually use that term and I thought, that's it. That's it. Yes. Yes, that applies to me. But we, throughout the week, and probably the last week too, we kept hearing about this memo. And had anyone seen it? No. (laughs) Except for the Senate Foreign Intelligence Committee, um, the House eventually, and then the president. No one had seen this. And yet there's incredible speculation. And it was like, okay, yeah, I get it. Okay, we, we keep talking about it. And, and the important thing, if you hadn't followed the speculation, because you've been much like me, which was, okay, there's this memo, but nobody knows what's in it, and they're not sure if they're going to release it. In some ways, it's speculation about speculation. And when does that ever lead to fruitful dialogue? But if you didn't know, the, the important thing about the memo, this comes from Devin Nunes, so leader of the Senate Intelligence Committee. And one of the things that it does is it has these allegations that there were senior officials in the government favoring Democrats over Republicans. And one of the things it looks at is the federal law enforcement officials in particular saying that maybe they were extending their power, you know, when they were looking to have permission to basically have the surveillance of Carter Page, who was the former Trump campaign advisor. And maybe that was a breach of the kind of authority and power that they currently have. And so that is what is in this memo? Now, I encourage you, I've had the opportunity to read it. I haven't been able to analyze it fully as this came out literally hot off the press less than 24 hours ago. And especially for legal documents and government documents, it's not a memo like you'd have an office memo that's really fast and short and easy to read like, hey, don't forget you can wear jeans on Friday or um, don't forget to put in $5 for the birthday cake fund. I don't know. We don't have office memos, so I'm just guessing and that's what they're like that's based on TV and pop culture. But whatever an office memo is, usually an office memo is a memo because it's known for being short and brief. And two things that nobody would ever say about government and certainly not about Congress or the FBI. So this memo is incredibly lengthy. And as I said, I have read it. I'm still working on the analysis of it because I, I think there's so much there. And I do want to dedicate more time to that later to discuss it. But if we're looking at it on face value, I mean, you have this division, not just, again, across party lines, but even in terms of within them, of what this means. Because for a while, you know, you had the Republicans saying, okay, we're not sure if we want to release this memo. We're not sure if we have the right to release this memo. Um, The Republican appointed FBI director, that's Chris Wray. You know, appointed not just by Republicans, by the way. He was appointed by President Trump saying we should not release this memo. It's going to give away important, um, not necessarily secrets. I know that's not the term he would use. And that sounds really conspiratorial for me to say secrets. But it's going to give away information that the FBI doesn't want public. And that as people interested in the, the best interest of our country, the FBI is going to argue that we would not want public either. You know, but that's that's a Republican appointee leading a bureaucratic agency 
and, and it's directly at odds with a number of other Republicans because many of them were saying that this memo proves that it illustrates the alleged government surveillance abuse that many had claimed for quite some time. But until you have a memo that really outlines it, you know, a claim is a claim and an allegation is an allegation. We live in a country where you're innocent until proven guilty. And that's probably true in a court of law. I hope it is. I trust our judicial system. <laughs> but when we say innocent until proven guilty, you and I both know that's not the case in public opinion. You know, in fact, if anything, it's quite the opposite. So the FBI, if you hadn't read this, FBI called it materially false in terms of the contents in the memo. And they said that basically, you know, it's incredibly misleading. And that this, they came out with this this uh, memo from themselves saying all this on Wednesday afternoon, kind of in anticipation that the memo was ultimately going to be released. And I think Thursday was the day that we felt, yes, it was most likely going to happen. Of course, then yesterday they released it. But this comes into question a lot of challenges here. You know, is this in, is this a breach of government authority or is the the contents of the memo, the breach of government authority? To me, looking at it again from a partisan perspective, you had Democrats saying, um, oh, we should release it or we should not release it. You had Republicans saying the same thing, but they were all doing it for their own self-interest. And to be fair, I understand that's how humanity works. I seek my own self-interest too, just as anyone does. But I'm, I'm also looking at the greater good and I, I get really, what's the best word to say it? I think anxious and uh, skeptical cynical when you have divisions across the parties but also within the parties because that should raise a red flag that tell you that tells you there's something important here and there's something that isn't being talked about but is important and needs to be talked about so one of the things you can look at is just in terms of the relationship between a republican appointed fbi and then the president himself who made the appointment it it kind of looks like the president's making efforts to undermine the confidence in the FBI itself. And of course, this is all happening. Can't believe I haven't mentioned his name yet under the Robert Mueller investigation, which is deeply related to this, the investigation as a whole to this memo in the first place. So in some ways, it becomes this odd hearsay where everyone's trying to undermine or discredit the other person. And then what can you truly believe? So you you see this kind of divided partisanship and and these really deep divisions that are influential not just in terms of within the parties but also among them and really both of those things being so so very important if you're just joining us this is dr laura merrifield wilson here on positively politics talking about political divisiveness and you know we've talked about the state of the union we've talked about the nunez memo um, the big elephant in the room, or should I say donkey, or elephant and donkey? Why can't we have both animals? Let's just say it. This is a small studio. But the big, <laughs> the big thing I have to discuss here could not omit, and I will say I'm first to say I love local and state government. Sometimes it's hard to follow because, and amen, thank you for Indiana, we're a relatively – I don't want to say calm state. That's that's unfair. But we're not a state that's getting a lot of attention for crazy scandals and wild personalities. And that is not to undermine 
all the exciting things that happen politically in our state. That is much more of me saying, you know, it's awesome that we live in a state where the crazy stuff, you know, is much more politically based and it's not just based on uh, on individual interest. You know, I, I like it. I really, really like it. But even us in the Hoosier State from time to time have our own little bits of crazy. <laughs> and, and that is very much what we're seeing happening play out in city government right now. So to, to give you a, let's take a step back before we keep going forward, making sure we're all on the same page here. No, not everyone follows local government a lot. But in our city county council, remember, 13 Democrats, 12 Republicans, and they among themselves elect a city county council president, which up until quite recently, just under a month ago, had been Maggie Lewis. So she was the Democrat pr- uh, president leading the city county council And then come January 8th, you have this interesting coalition. You know, we'd say like disaffected Democrats. But you also have 10 of the 12 Republicans. And ultimately, they vote in Counselor Stephen Clay, also Reverend Stephen Clay. He takes over Lewis's position. and, And in this, we've seen an unusual, I think you could only say power play, transcend. So he takes over as city county council president. What we have in this past week on Monday, the city county council voted a no confidence vote for Clay. And what that signifies to us, just from procedural perspective, you say, what does no confidence mean? Well, obviously it means they have no confidence in him, but that's, (laughs) that seems really cruel just to be like, hey, we don't like you. Okay, now moving on to business. It's not just that sticker of disapproval. What that means is that the next city county council meeting, and that's slated right now for February 19th, the city county council, all 25 of them, are going to get back together and then ultimately vote on whether or not he should remain in office. And meanwhile, Clay has uh, responded, or not responded, depending on how you interpret this and who you believe, uh, in an unusual way. So that happens Monday night. Then we come back on Wednesday and City County Council President Reverend Clay has dismissed three people within the, uh, within the city bureaucracy. So he fired um, both the attorney for the council, he fired the, um, the clerk, and he fired the clerk's deputy. It took me a while to remember all of them, but the three people. And what's really fascinating within that is the question of who has the right to do this. Now realize these these positions are voted on to be accepted by the city county council. And what a number of members of the city county council are saying is that the president has no authority to dismiss them. And that's also what the attorney was saying, and that's Fred Biesecker. And the same thing in terms of the clerk, Natrina DeBeau. Both of them said, no, we report to and we work for the city county council. We do not report and work for the county, pre- the city county council president. And where this gets into is the nitty gritty of the legality within the statutes, because that's where you can look at the statutes and they outline the responsibilities of the clerk and the clerk's deputy and the responsibilities of the attorney. And on face value, it looks like, yes, that they do respond, in fact, to the council and not the president. But Clay says that this is just a typical transition of power. 
And to be sure, you're always going to have something like that. And as the president, I can certainly understand this from a procedural perspective, you have the right to put in people that you want in office. The question remains, though, did he have the right for these particular positions? And the thing where it's tough to avoid and saying, oh, no, it's not personal. It's not malicious or vindictive. And, you know, I don't I don't know him personally. And I don't I was not in the room when all these things happened. But that said, it looks really suspicious when this comes two days after a vote of no confidence to say, oh, no, it's totally unrelated. You know, the man's been in office since January 8th. And maybe it was. Maybe it's unfortunate timing. But at the same time, you can't deny uh, the unusual and maybe I can even say uncomfortable coincidence that this kind of provides for us. Because you, you can't get away from the fact that you have Monday, there's no confidence vote, which is pretty radical. And when this was happening, I was like, whoa, what's going on in local government? And that leads us to Wednesday with the firing of these individuals. And not even the firing, like the being escorted out of their offices. And then I believe Natrina DeBoe came back to her office on Thursday but was locked out of the computer. And I, I, I look at this and you, and you think – you know, there's some infighting for the Democratic Party, certainly at the local level, between maybe um, people who are loyal to Maggie Lewis, the former city county council president, and maybe people who are right now loyal to Stephen Clay. Uh, but they're both Democrats. And if you look at the partisan balance at the local level, this is the only place, if you're an Indianapolis voter, you have a Republican-controlled Congress and both House and Senate, a Republican-controlled president. You have a Republican-controlled executive branch across the board at the state level, including, of course, the governor and lieutenant governor. You have a supermajority in the houses of the state legislature. You know, if you're an Indianapolis voter, you're only – Democratic representation for that party, for the Democratic Party, obviously, is going to be at the local level. It is slim, 13 to 12. Now, thankfully, we know from the research that most voters don't have really long-term memories. And when I say thankfully, I mean that's to the benefit of the party or the candidates who make mistakes. I wish voters could remember longer because I think they would make different decisions if they looked at the long-term implications. But oftentimes, what the research tells us is quite the opposite. People will forget. Not everything, and they they won't forgive all, but they might forget. And as we look ahead, you know, we're one year out. It's a little more because I know we're in February, but we really are one year out from the local elections for the city county council president again, for the the whole council rather, they'll elect the president, and then for the mayor. And so that's not too distant future for us. If you're just joining us, this is Dr. Laura Merrifield-Wilson here on Positive Politics on WICR 88.7. And as I'm kind of wrapping up, the, you know, the theme for today and, and many things that have happened this week that we've discussed. You know, we talked about the State of the Union and we talked about the Nunes memo and certainly what's going on in local government right now. With all of these, you, you look at this partisan fighting. And I think a lot of times we, we tend to say, you know, America is so polarized. America is so divided. And as a country, I think there's a strong argument for that. There certainly is. You know, you, you don't see a willingness to compromise, not in any one of these circumstances. But the extra kicker, the thing that we often, I think, overlook and undervalue is that we're not even unwilling to compromise across the aisle, but within our own side. 
And this, I think, is a real important challenge for the two-party system right now. I don't know if this could provide an opportunity for a third party to um, basically transport one of the other parties and, and ultimately replace them. Though institutionally, the way we have everything set up, there's no room for coalitions. There's no way you could have a third party that's really and truly active and competitive as the other two. You know, we have winner-take-all elections, which means you get 51% of the vote. Congratulations, you won the district. You don't get 51% of district. That's not how it works in our country. There are places where it does work that way. That's not here. So third parties are always going to be disadvantaged, but I wonder if this is an opportunity for them. You know, and likewise, maybe we do some more soul searching for the main parties, but they have to address these kind of fractionalizations within themselves. You know, divided we stand, united we fall, paraphrasing the Bible and also President Abraham Lincoln. <laughs> but you're familiar with the, uh, with the old saying, right? Well, if both parties are divided, I don't know how they're going to stand united against anyone come November. And then even looking longer term past that, th this division is insurmountable in many ways. I don't think it's um, incapable of being addressed, but I do think it's going to be a challenge for them. So what do you think? You know, is this a real problem for both parties? Is one party more disadvantaged or hurting more or benefiting more than the other? I, I want to hear your opinions. Feel free. Shoot me an email at L as in Laura, M as in Merrifield, Wilson, W-I-L-S-O-N, at symbol U-I-N-D-Y, that's U-N-D, dot edu as an education would love to hear from you on this i want to say i hope you have a fantastic rest of your saturday enjoy this first weekend in february fingers crossed it's only getting warmer and i look forward to talking to you next week for wicr 88.7 the diamond and positively politics this has been dr laura merrifield wilson have a wonderful weekend